Good morning. Before Brother Tim brings our lesson this morning, let's read Psalm 98. Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy, his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre and with the lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets and the sound of horn, make a joyful noise before the king, before the Lord. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. So good to have Bonner read to us Psalm 8 this morning. Uh, one reason is because it is just a joy to see our young people go out and go to college and go to other places and to come back filled with faith in the Lord. And so we rejoice in that. Amen. You know, Psalm 98 we just read there is a psalm that is completely full of joy. It is... It contains no request, no complaint, no doubt. It is just pure joy from beginning to end. I think it's worth noting that when the Lord Jesus came into this world, he was announced likewise with a hymn of joy. It was the angel who spoke to that group of shepherds out on the field, and he said to, uh, to them, I bring you good news of Great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today in the town of David, a Savior has been born. He is Christ the Lord. Jesus coming into this world was preceded by a psalm of joy. And the fact that we are waiting for His return causes us also, likewise, to want to sing a psalm of joy. You know, many of the psalms deal with our struggles our questions, our doubts. The Psalms often correct us and persuade us. But I want to say to us that sometimes it is helpful to just stop our quiet and quiet our minds. To look back, to look through all of the uncertainties and doubts that we face and just sing with joy about who God is. Because when we contemplate the works and the character of God, it can't help but create joy in our lives, as this song does. In fact, it did that in the life of a man by the name of Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts wrote Psalm, or he read Psalm 98, and he then wrote the well-known song, Joy to the World. Now, he didn't write this originally as a hymn. He was just going through the Psalms and he was rewording them and applying them to Jesus. And rightly so, he does with Psalm 98. For Psalm 98 addresses God as Savior and King and Judge. 
But as God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, He fulfilled each of these characteristics of God in full form. This is a psalm not just about God, but about God in the flesh called Jesus. He is the Savior, the King, and the Judge. It's intriguing, though, to know why he wrote this hymn. Uh, back during the medieval period, hymns were not generally sung in, con in congregations. It wasn't until the early 1500s that Martin Luther came along and said, why don't we start all singing together? And he wrote and put together the first hymnal in the early 1500s. It would be another hundred years before another hymnal was ever produced. But it was in the late 1600s that a man by the name of Isaac Watts became frustrated about the worship of God's people, particularly in the realm of singing. He wrote this. He said, To see the dull indifference and the neglect and thoughtless air that sits upon the faces of the whole assembly while the psalm is on their lips might tempt even the most charitable observer to doubt the fervor of their inward religion. I think I've worshipped in a church like that before, haven't you? Where it just looks like the way that people are worshipping, there's really nothing going on inside. And so he decided to change that, and he wrote over 600 hymns, many of which we still sing 300 years later. And one day, Isaac Watts had his Bible open to Psalm 98. And he read this, and he reworded it, and he applied it to Jesus, and he said, Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room, and heaven and nature sing. He rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and the wonders of His love. Psalm 98 is one of the most joyful, hopeful songs. And it has inspired hope and joy among God's people for centuries. There is no hint of confusion in it, no complaint no request. There is simply a joyful praise for who God is. And my prayer this morning is that as we go through this psalm, the same thing may happen in my heart and your heart as we see our Lord Jesus more clearly. This is a psalm that divides into three sections, three stanzas. And each stanza tells us something different about the character of God. In the first stanza, he is portrayed as the Savior. In the second, He is the King. And ultimately, in the third, He is Judge. But in addition to that, God's involvement with humanity is seen to take place over time. In the first stanza, He deals with what God has done for His people Israel in the past. In the middle, He talks about what we ought to do in the present. And in the last stanza, He invites us to see that we need to be ready for God in the future. And in this, way, in this way, my friends, 
Our praise and our joy in God knows no time limit. It is something that is true of the past, the present, and the future. But finally, these stanzas can also reveal to us the swelling expansion of worship that is to take place to our God. Stanza one is directed to Israel. Israel, worship the Lord. The second stanza is, is directed to all of the nations. All living human beings recognize he is king. And then in the final stanza, it calls even all of nature to join in the song and say, he is judge. And you put this together and you find the emphasis of the song is this. All things should always joyfully praise God for all of his wondrous works and character. And that's the message of the psalm. Let's begin looking at the first stanza. Where Israel is called to rejoice because God is their savior. In fact, the word salvation is used three times, you see, in this section. And he's talking about how God had provided for Israel some kind of deliverance. Maybe it was from Egyptian slavery. Maybe it was from Babylonian bondage. Maybe it was from some other enemy. But in some way, God had provided salvation for his people. And wonderfully, it is left in a general fashion because we can apply it to any victory that God has provided for us, most particularly what he provided for us through Jesus, the King, our Savior. In fact, the first thing we learn about Jesus in the gospel is what the angel says to Joseph about Mary's baby. He says, Joseph, you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is portrayed as our Savior. And what he provided was no small victory whatsoever. Verse 1 says, you have done marvelous things, causing the author to sing, quote, a new song to the Lord. In other words, what the Lord did was so unprecedented, so great, that the old songs couldn't describe it accurately. I find it interesting that in Revelation chapter 5, we are given an opportunity to see what happened in heaven when Jesus died upon the cross and was raised from the dead. This is what it says was happening in heaven when he ascended. It says, For the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a... New song, it says, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They praised God for being the Savior the Savior of all people who put their faith in Him. There has never been an opportunity for God's people to be so thankful for a Savior than when Jesus Christ died for our sins. And it was a mighty, mighty victory. 
Verse 1 says, His right hand and His holy arm has worked salvation for Him. The emphasis here is that the victory was won by God's might. It is His victory, not mine. He doesn't have to share the glory of my salvation with anybody else. He's the one who secured it. And notice, He secured it by, it says, your right hand and your holy arm. I couldn't help but reflect upon how Jesus won the victory over sin and death for us. It is by the stretching out of his holy arm and his hands being nailed to a cross that won victory over sin that we can be free and forgiven and we can have eternal life. A mightier battle has never been fought than what was fought by Jesus Christ for us on the cross. And he did it, it says here, not only because of his righteousness and because of his mighty works, but because of his righteousness. He says, his righteousness he has revealed in the sight of all the nations. God's righteousness is what was powerful. You know, bullies are powerful. They can say hurtful words and they can swing hurtful fists. But God's power was done for righteous purposes. And as a result, it created his righteousness to be known through all the nations. Verses 2 and 3, The Lord has made known his salvation in the sight of the nation. The end of the earth have seen the salvation of God. You read that and you can almost hear Jesus in the Great Commission saying, I want you to go to all the nations and I want you to teach them the gospel, the story of my salvation for all humanity. And the story of the gospel has been heard in all corners of the earth. The powerful work upon the cross has echoed across the earth. But what's most precious to me in this is not just the mighty acts of our Savior, the righteous acts of our Savior, the famous acts of our Savior, but the reason He did it. The text says in verse 3, the reason He did it is because He has steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. Jesus saved His people because He loves His people. And that's why he is worthy of praise. That's the reason it is such a joyful thing to think about our salvation. He saved us because of his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people. And so can I ask us this morning to stop and for a moment just peer past your fears and your doubts Push back your obligations and your activities. And just for a moment, see the marvelous works of Jesus to bring about your salvation. See afresh His steadfast love for you, even though you have at times been rebellious and ignored Him. Will you see the power of His cross to forgive every sin you've ever committed? Will you see not also that, but the power of His resurrection to give you and I eternal life? Can you for a moment peer past 
this present decay and see your Savior and for a moment rejoice in Him. Rejoice in your Savior. But not only is Israel called to rejoice in their Savior, but all the inhabitants of the earth are then called to rejoice that God is their King. Make a joyful noise, it says at the beginning. And make a joyful noise, it says at the end. Why? Because the King is our Lord. You know, at times like we're living in, the kings and rulers of this earth are frustratingly foolish. They set themselves often against righteousness. They do not act on the, for the good of their people. But it is at times like this we need to remember that the, the rulers of this world are not the ultimate rulers of this world. We have a king who rules over them all. In fact, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, the king of Babylon, the most powerful king of his era, he recognized that when it comes to control, the most high's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures forever. In fact, the early church in the first century, they faced great persecution from the power of an emperor, the Roman government. It was a scary thing. They looked like they had the control and the church was simply a small group of people tossed on the waters of persecution soon to drown. And yet, in the book of Revelation, they reminded themselves that the rulers of this world are not where it's at. And they wrote in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16, On his robe, that is Jesus, and on his thigh... His glory and His strength is written. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And that's why we as God's people can joyfully sing. The kingdoms of this earth will pass away one by one. But the kingdom of heaven remains. It is built on a rock and the Lord is its king. And forever and ever He reigns. We have a joy because we are a part of a kingdom and have a king that is righteous and good and eternal, always acts for the good of his people. And this section of the psalm begins and ends with this statement. That is, make a joyful noise to him because he is a king. There should be something that's loud about our worship. There ought to be something that is visibly joyful about our worship. As Isaac Watts observed, sometimes that's not the case. And the reason it's not the case is because we don't know who we're worshiping. But when we know we worship him as king, it changes how we exuberantly, joyfully worship him. And if that was true for Israel's God, who delivered them from temporal enemies, how much more so is it true of our King Jesus, who has delivered us from sin and death. You know, sometimes when I'm singing, I think about my voice. I, I look, actually, right back up there at the very top of that little pinnacle of where the roof comes together. And I think about my voice going right through that little crack. And I think about it going right up into the throne room of God. Because I want God to hear 
what I'm saying about him. So can I ask you this morning to take a moment and to peer past your fears about this world, peer past your frustrations with politics, peer past the troubling events of this world, and can I ask you to see the King of Kings sitting upon the throne and find your peace in Him. Can I ask you to see Jesus sitting upon the throne, having all authority over sin and death, and find your joy in Him? Can I ask you to see Jesus sitting upon the throne, speaking to us words of righteousness and truth, and find in Him our marching orders for the next week? Can I ask us to see Jesus, Savior and King, and find our joy in Him? And then the last part of this psalm calls all of creation to join in the song as it worships him and joyfully praises him as being judge. This psalm is is intended to call sinners to change, knowing that the judge is coming. And it also gives comfort to the righteous, knowing them, knowing that the judge will right all wrongs. And while all Israel was called to worship God in the first first stanza, and then all of the nations were called to worship God in the second stanza, it's interesting that all of nature, the hills, the rivers, are all now called to worship God in this last stanza. And perhaps it is a way of saying to us, shouldn't you join in this chorus? I mean, if Israel sees who God is and worship Him, And if the nations has, and even if the rocks and hills and the valleys and the hills are worshiping Him as judge, shouldn't you also? Don't be left out. But I also wonder if there's another reason why all nature is joining joining in to praise God as judge. Because Paul tells us what we see happening in Genesis 3 and onward. He tells us in Romans chapter 8 that this world, the nature of this world, in fact, is being subjected to the consequences of sin. We see everywhere around us elements that are decaying. We see things that are dying. We see things that are corrupted. And even nature itself is disintegrating. And the... Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 that nature is groaning. Nature is wanting to be released from the consequences of sin. And if they are, how much more so are we? And so as all nature looks for the judge to come, to remove the consequences of sin, and as Peter says, to create a new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells then we can join in with all nature and say, Lord, let it be. Let it be. And notice what this judge will do. Notice the text. The judge will come to judge everyone. To judge the earth and to judge the world, the text says. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. In other words, only of those who have been made righteous by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross 
will be able to stand before that judge. It's not because of what family you're from or what church you attended or you've been treated special all your life. He'll be certainly treating you special. He will treat all people with equity. And it's only those who have been made righteous by his gift that he is going to acquit. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28 says, Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And then notice he will judge with equity, with fair, fairness. And so for a moment this morning, can I ask us to peer past the family expectations for our lives. Of what other people think we ought to be and do. Can I ask us to peer past the cultural expectations of the way we ought to look and the way we ought to behave? Can I ask us to peer past our own personal goals and ambitions? And can I ask us to see Jesus seated on, seated on the throne as judge and to realize that in the end, it is only his opinion that matters. Will you see Jesus coming in judgment and rejoice that he has forgiven you? Will you see Jesus coming as judge and realize you don't have to take vengeance. You don't have to get even. You don't have to make people pay. Jesus is quite capable of being a righteous judge. And can you see Jesus coming in judgment and quit hiding your sins and thinking somehow, you're not going to be accountable for them. You know, the angel told Joseph that Mary's son would be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Just two verses later, though, we find another name given to Jesus. It's one that came from the book of Isaiah and applied to Christ, saying, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Who Jesus was and is, is he was God who came to be among us so that he could save us. And today he rules over us as king. And ultimately he is going to come again as judge. We can sing Psalm 98 even more emphatically than ancient Israel did. Because we have known the king that much more intimately. And that king, as he ascended back into heaven, gave us this great statement. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Let all the world know of my victory. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Have victory over sin. That's what baptism is about. Baptism is about dying to sins, meeting Christ at His, at his death and His resurrection, so that as He was raised from the dead and has eternal life, upon the removal of our sins and baptism, we too raise from that baptism, the waters of baptism and given eternal life that Jesus Christ secured upon His resurrection. And then He says, teach them to obey everything I've commanded them. Make, them, make me your Lord 
follow me as your king, and I'm going to be with you always. There is the Emmanuel. I'm going to be with you always. But then notice this, unto the end of the age. It will come to an end. And when it does, the one who came as Savior will come as judge. And if there's anybody here who's not ready to meet that judge, knowing that Jesus has forgiven your sins by his grace, wouldn't you make today the day that you start your walk with Jesus for all that he's done for you? And know that you can leave here secure that when the Lord Jesus comes as judge, you'll be able to say in that day, that's a good day. I'm ready for him to come. If you need to respond to the gospel, we'd love to ask you to do as we stand and say.